I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Rosalind Arden. She is a behavioral geneticist and research fellow at the London School of Economics, where she studies intelligence in both humans and dogs using an evolutionary framework. Rosalind, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. So I saw, looking at your background, you didn't go straight into research. You were making science documentaries for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I had a very unusual career trajectory in that my first interests were all in the humanities and in the arts. And my undergraduate degree was in the history of art, design and film. And towards the end of that degree, I just picked up a random book on string theory. And I was completely consumed by it. Of course, I didn't know what it was, but high energy particle physics seemed to be reading about high energy particle physics felt like lying on the hood of a car and looking up at the stars. It just felt wonderful to have an exposure to a completely new world. And at the same time, I had uh, heard about someone who was looking for ideas for television series. And so armed with my, <laughs> armed with my book of interviews and having read just a smattering of articles, I went and banged on someone's door and said, I would love to interview you to make a television program about the universe and about string theory. And luckily for me, the scientist was just incredibly generous. And we ended up making this really fun film. And then I just worked in science television, documentary making for some time. That sounds very interesting. So were you, were you all over or did you gradually sort of shift your focus more towards um, like psychological focus? Um, I, the way television works is that it's a bit like publishing. So you have, an, you have to have an idea that you think other people might be interested in. So I was kind of all over the map in whatever I thought people would be interested in for a one hour documentary. And that often requires about a year of background reading. So television making is an excuse to basically be a lifelong learner, which was the fun mm -hmm. thing about it. And I did in the end, end up making a film about the work that Professor Robert Plowman and his lab were doing at King's College London, and that was concerning intelligence, and that was pretty extraordinary for me. Mm -hmm. So that kind of launched you into your research career? Yes, it, it, it almost did. So I subsequently moved from London to New Mexico, and I couldn't work in New Mexico because I didn't have a green card, and it takes some years to go through that process. And on a return visit back to London, I said to Professor Plowman one day, man, I can't just do nothing. It's driving me nuts. And I want to, I'm thinking of doing a PhD. And he very generously said, come and do one with me. So I did. That's great. So did you know uh, from the beginning what you were going to be researching? Yes, I thought there was a huge gap between what people generally thought the questions were concerning intelligence, whereas what scientists were uh, discussing, what were the kind of questions we need to answer in intelligence research. So I thought there's a consensus among the scientists on certain things, but the kind of public view of it is somewhere else. And I thought that I'd like to just start trying to figure out if I could answer some basic questions or even figure out what would be a basic question that would be manageable for someone who's just a beginner. Uh -huh. So what are some examples of both the scientific consensus and then maybe public misconceptions about what that is? Well, one concerns what people mean when we talk about intelligence, which is just a very mm -hmm. fundamental and basic question. So when we talk about intelligence in everyday life, if you say, ah, oh, so-and-so, you know, Helen, she's just really smart, she's a really bright woman. No one ever turns around and says, well, what do you mean by smart? What do you mean when you say Helen's intelligent? Um, we all know what it means. It's an everyday use sort of a word. But when you want to science that word, it's very different. You have to have a measurement. So when scientists and scholars use 
the word intelligence, they are referring to usually something that has been measured or observed. And so you can say, well, we administered a series of tests to Jack, Helen's brother, and we have these scores on his tests over the last few years. But no scientist thinks that those scores represent everything that is meant about Jack's mental capacities, mental life, his capacity to be creative, his emotional sensitivity, or his future potential. So I think that when scientists talk about intelligence, they mean it in a restricted way that is useful. It's not nothing, it's useful, but it's a, it's a restricted meaning. And I think perhaps when the public think about intelligence and say, well, what do you mean by these IQ tests? What are they? Um, they're kind of imagining that scientists might think that intelligence wraps up everything about someone's future potential and concerning their mental life or their mental capacities. So I think that's the biggest disconnection between perhaps some of the popular discussions versus what scientists actually agree on. Mm -hmm. That sounds kind of similar to the multiple intelligences theory, and I don't, I don't know where the scientific consensus stands on this, but you might have some people who you think, oh, you know, he is very mathematically smart, um, but not so emotionally intelligent or something like that. And then, so it seems like there are these sort of distinct areas that you could measure or at least talk about. There are definitely distinct areas that you could measure, and they tend to overlap somewhat, and the overlap um, is statistically described as something called G. But you're right when you say that in everyday life, we're very attuned in ourselves and to each other about our specific abilities and talents. And I think that's what I mean when I say, well, if so-and-so has an IQ score of say 100 or 85 or 110, we don't mean that, that they are like, um, that they don't, we don't mean that that captures everything about the, their specific strengths or weaknesses. You can have someone who say has a population average score, let's say we converge on a hundred and call that the average, they could have tremendous strengths in a particular area and they might be able to do outlandish things with their memorizing the flags of foreign countries or whatever. So Intelligence scores are useful, but they're just not the whole picture and nobody regards them as being the whole picture of someone's mental life. Is it not the whole picture for individuals, but like if you look on large populations on average, will the people with higher IQs tend to be better on like specific tasks you can name? Yeah, I think it's always important to figure out what question are you asking? Mm -hmm before you make generalizations about the research and the people, the population, the age, whatever it is. So if, for example, Jack's really struggling at school and he's 12 years old and you know, the parents are getting concerned that his scores really aren't good, it could be useful to administer a properly validated and reliable test battery, which just means a group of tests to Jack to see whether or not there's something that's out of kilter. You might find, for example, that Jack is actually a really high scorer, but he has dyslexia or something. Or you could discover that actually Jack's scores are rather lower than had been expected and he might need some support to help him get through schooling. So I think it's just very important to to think crisply about what is it that you want to know. If you're asking about um, Jack in particular, then there might be specific procedures that you'd want to use IQ tests for. IQ tests are quite comfortable, like thermometers, to just sit in the cupboard unused. It's not like because they exist, they have to be administered to every child every year. They are useful tools that can be trotted out when needed, but they don't necessarily need to be administered regularly to people. Mm -hmm. And I've heard arguments on both sides of, you know, so upholding IQ tests is valid and reliable, and then some people who disagree with that. So is there a scientific consensus on, on how reliable these tests tend to be? 
the evidence is that they are reliable, meaning if you administer a test to the same person twice and say a month apart or two months apart, then the scores tend to be pretty similar to each other. That's kind of what reliability is. Then you could say, well, are they valid? Do they do what they say on the tin? Well, if you if you're doing something like selecting people into a university or selecting people into a job, then they do a reasonably good job of helping you understand which university might be a really good place, a good suitable learning environment for a particular person. And if, for example, you're in, um, let's say, an organisation like the army, or where you've got 5,000 different trades at different levels of task difficulty, IQ tests can be helpful in saying, you know what, these might be a good series of occupations for you to look at. Um, what they don't do is put a limit on someone's potential. So if someone says, okay, well, you know, my IQ, my IQ score turned out only to be 100, does that mean I'm never going to um, navigate my way blindfold through a complicated maze. Maybe you'll learn that some other way. So it doesn't tell you everything. It's important to figure out what is my question. If I want to know, is there a way for me to learn this complicated task of navigating blindfold through a maze? There are plenty of ways that we don't need to turn to your IQ score. So would it be right to think that if a score is low, it's possible that it's artificially low because maybe someone is very smart but just not paying attention or something like that. But then the flip side is if you get a high score, you, you probably couldn't have faked it or it couldn't have been blind luck. Um, no measure is absolutely perfect, but it's on you, it would be extremely unusual to get a high score in a test like the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale, partly because it is a group of tests rather than a single test. And so you're right that if you ace the test, it's unlikely to be blind luck. But it is certainly true that you could score rather poorly one day because you just you felt lousy, manifestly hungover, girlfriend just left you, your grandmother died yesterday. So it's not that every single test you take is always going to reproduce exactly the same score. And of course, people's motivation varies from day to day. So again, it depends what your research question is. If you're saying you're measuring 10,000 people, there will be people in that group who are unmotivated that day and who've had a really rough time in the last week or who have woke up that morning with flu but it's not going to perturb or cause too much noise to the signal in a population of 10,000 people but if it's Helen and you want to know what her score is as an individual then you would want to choose a day when she's not massively hungover or wrecked because she's just been ditched by mm -hmm. her girlfriend or boyfriend. And if you choose to look at the, the sort of general factor of intelligence as opposed to like mathematical ability or verbal ability or something much more specific, what types of questions um, require that general cognitive ability factor as opposed to like what, what types of questions would it be better to look at that general factor as opposed to something more specific? Well, that's, that's a really good question. So the key thing is the general factor is actually a statistical property that emerges from the overlap among different kinds of tests. It's not a thing in itself in that way. So if you were to say, um, test me on a bunch of mathematics questions, bunch of history questions, bunch of filling in the next series and the visual pattern questions, vocabulary and so on you could extract what's in common in my answers to all of those kinds of questions. And it's that when you administer those, a different range of 
tests to a group of people. It's that that allows you to extract this G factor. There aren't really questions that, um, that get at the G factor itself. The G factor just emerges from the overlap with other other ordinary, other questions that tap into other spe more specific abilities like maths, verbal reasoning, um, spatial reasoning. Yeah. I've heard about overlap between this G factor of intelligence and working memory. Is there, are, are those two like the same or is there something that's distinct from, uh, of, about general intelligence as opposed to just, you know, if you have better working memory, maybe you're faster at everything. That's a good question too. There's a real expert on that among my colleagues and friends. He's called Andrew, Professor Andrew Conway. Um, it's not completely clear, I think. The, my guess is that uh, working memory contributes hugely to this general factor. Whether or not they are exactly the same, I think is probably unsettled, but I'd say working memory contributes enormously to this general factor. If you think about it, working memory is just a bit like a scratch pad. So whatever it is that you're doing that's a cognitive task, working memory is probably going to be involved at some level. So even if you say to me something like, how do you spell Marmite, that um, British condiment that other people find extraordinary, I have to kind of remember the word that I'm being told to spell. So working memory is an ingredient in most of the mental tasks that we do. Mm -hmm, that makes sense. So yeah, if you, if you have better working memory capacity or just better general intelligence, whatever that is, you can work through problems faster or maybe more accurately. But are there any downsides to it? To having a good- To having working... better, either higher intelligence or better working memory. That's been, tested because it's a reasonable question to ask. And so far the evidence seems to be that there are no downsides to having higher intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think because we care about each other and we care about things like inequalities, particularly social inequalities, it's kind of a bit, you make the horse eyes. It's like, oh no, not another thing, which seems to be partly lottery and partly unfair because high intelligence is to a great extent an unearned benefit. So it would be kind of cool in a way if we could say, well, you know what, those people, they're very smart, but there's a real bad downside. And, you know, <laughs> I'm quite lucky not to be so smart because at least I don't have to pay those consequences. Yeah. But the world, our job is just to describe the world as it is rather than to do social engineering on it. And the evidence suggests that high intelligence confers benefits, but not risks. Mm -hmm. Right. If there was a, a much clearer trade-off, I guess it would seem people would be less upset at the idea of this sort of genetic lottery of intelligence. Yeah. yeah. I, so I, I, guess, I guess that's a good transition to, to talk about how much intelligence has to do with these sort of genetic biological factors and how much it has to do with your upbringing and your Sure. So that's a nice thing to talk about. One of the things that um, I think is really important to remember is that when people talk about the contribution of genetics to intelligence, the way in which we talk about that is concerning the it's quantified as the heritability, but the heritability is about differences among people. It's not like a, um, it's not a kind of scope that you point at someone and you say, there's Helen, there's Jack, and I'm going to point this scope at them and I will be able to read off how much Helen's genes contribute to how smart she is and how much Jack's genes can pop. Um, uh, contribute to how smart he is. Heritability is about variance and variance is about adding up little bits of difference among all of us and looking at the genetic contribution to that. So I think it's kind of ripe for 
a model among non-scientists and among scientists who don't specialize in thinking about this kind of thing quite clearly and carefully. So when we talk about the genetic contribution, it's at the sort of measured sample level rather than an individual's level. It's not Helen, it's not Jack, it's just this is what you look at when you see a sample. And the genetic contribution from study after study after study seems to be around half of the differences among us in, in measured intelligence tests. And the, it varies across our life. So in early childhood, the contribution by family influences seems to be larger and the contribution from genes seems to increase over the life course. And again, that's been tested in very, I mean, tens of thousands, very large samples. Mm -hmm. So it's the exact yeah. opposite of what I'd expect. You might think that you're born with your genes and then over time you become more influenced by your environment. That's kind of why science is fun because that's what all of us expected. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to make so much sense that you're born with your genes, you're born a certain way. And then the longer you're exposed to a particular environment, um, the more that environment would shape you. It's just such common sense. And yet it turns out to be wrong. And that's kind of exciting because if science isn't exciting, then, then we should all just go, go home. It's, it is, it's tremendously fun to find out new things. And this finding about the genes having a greater influence on measured intelligence as we age, I think is really only been known for about the last 25 years. And as we've got bigger samples and better ways of estimating and measuring that those changes, it's like, gosh, this, this really is for real. It's extraordinary. Uh -huh. Even through older adulthood, it seems to hold true. Mm -hmm. So even if there's no um, scientific consensus yet, what are some of the theories for why that happened? Why genes have greater influence over time? Yes, you're right that there isn't really a clear understanding of why that happens yet. So some of the ideas had to do with, well, is it niches? Is it that, let's say, let's say Helen's a real bookworm. Is it that, so she's got some kind of, bookish genes, but as she ages, she's able to escape from the environment that her family provided for her and to seek out the exact environment that fits her aptitudes and preferences. And if she's bookish, she just spends more and more and more time at the local library, let's say, for example. And so you could say, well, of course, Helen's more, much more like, uh, She's just like, look at her bookishness in later life. It's, it's much greater than it was in childhood because the environment that she has put herself in has amplified the genes that she had already. And now she's just like Helen, Helen the book. So you could, see, you could see traits, including intelligence, working in that way. That makes um, a lot of sense. I, I would think that if that's true, you might see it see stronger effects in that direction in wealthier countries because if you're fortunate enough to grow up in an affluent area where everyone's like you know pursue what you love as opposed to somewhere where you have to do maybe a very specific job in order to have it eat, um maybe maybe the genetic component wouldn't be able to manifest that's fully exactly so if you were thinking about well how could i test this what kind of population would you want to go and look at to see whether or not that effect of increasing genetic influence existed in that other place where these kinds of explanations wouldn't work. I mean, where would you suggest that one would get, gather new data? Well, I don't, I don't know where, where the data has been collected or, but, but I guess it would be interesting to contrast, you know, these sort of weird societies, the Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic with, with very different places. I completely agree with you. I think that 
if you the fun thing about having an idea is you can think well what's the counterfactual or what would where would mm -hmm. where would that explanation really not work so i agree with you that if you were to follow a, a large enough population of let's say hunter gatherers or um people living in very different environments where the niches weren't quite mm -hmm. so differentiated that would be a wonderful way to to see well well what happens in that environment of course it's not true to say that there are no niches in hunter-gatherer society right. but so i don't want to pretend to be an anthropologist when i'm not one um but and you, could, are, you could have temperament that makes you more likely to want to be a forager like categorizing all the plants which would basically be the equivalent of bookish helen it, exactly there could be that there must be many, many niches because there are many skills. It's not easy to live in those environments and people will have um, oriented towards things that they both like and are good at and are rewarding and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right, that's the way That's the way to do science, to think, well, is there some other, th uh, other way in which we could test this idea? Or sometimes it's a statistical idea. Well, supposing we took the family and we partitioned it up in this way or that way, and then, then let's have a look at that or, mm -hmm. um, there are, if, if you're driven by curiosity, there are often ways to divide up things that look as if they're tangled and knotty to begin with to arrive at answers. So one of, this, one of these hypotheses is the niche one, which hearing it for the first time, I like, but I'm guessing there are also competing hypotheses. There are. In fact, I think a really big study, I feel ashamed for saying, I can't remember what their finding was, but I think a really big study on this very question has taken place recently and I I frankly just don't remember what they found. I'm sorry. All right, no worries. So what is your actual work when you when you're doing genetic studies? What specific questions are you asking? Well, what I've started doing is, is, is as you mentioned before, work doing some working with dogs. Um, I figured that there's just a ton that we've learned. What I was interested in is thinking, why is this thing called G? Why is it associated with so many other positive outcomes? Mm -hmm. Why is it that people who are brighter tend to live longer? It's a very, very small correlation. And I'm certainly not arguing that it's causal, but I thought, why is longer life associated with being brighter? Why is better health associated with being brighter? Is it that brighter people think, oh man, look at that. It turns out that cigarettes are really bad for you. I'm gonna quit right now. Is it that brighter people have access to different knowledge and so they change their habits to healthier habits? Or is, it, is there a competing and alternative explanation? The answer is always that there are many explanations. It's never just one thing but I, I was kind of curious about that and I started thinking well we've learned a shared load of stuff about humans and human intelligence and the relationships between intelligence and other outcomes in humans but it's just is this just mammal typical or are humans special in terms of these networks of relationships so I thought well why don't we find out if these networks of relationships occur in other mammals too, do brighter porcupines live longer? I have to say, I don't know the answer to that question yet, um, but I thought it would be a very kind of fruitful way to do some new science. And so I thought, well, let's start with a dog because that's just going to be so easy. There are so many dogs, they're so accessible and they don't have some of these lifestyle features that can confound human studies when we're looking at correlations between outcomes like health and intelligence. And dogs don't smoke, they don't drink alcohol, they don't take recreational drugs, you know, they don't go on fancy holidays to Bermuda. It's just all going to be so easy. Mm. And all I have to do is find a way to measure their intelligence and then we're going and I was so wrong. It is so hard. It's like, oh my gosh, why did, on earth did I um, even try and begin this? It's, it's really hard when you 
try to find a way to assess cognitive abilities in a mammal that doesn't have language. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the tests that you have devised over the years? Well, we, we, I would say that we're right at the beginning of learning how to assess intelligence in other species. And what we did and what others have done, I would say we're very much at base camp still. Mm. We um, devised some tests adapted from tests that other people had tried and published in the scientific literature. Um, so some of them involve a dog finding its way to a food reward. So all these, all these tests with dogs are um, motivated by food rewards because with dogs, unlike with children, where you can, with children, you can just say, now children, turn over your papers and begin. But with dogs, you just can't, you have to say, okay, well, what are they gonna go for? So you kind of hope that they're gonna come in a little bit hungry, you give instructions to the owners beforehand. So we had a series of tests in which the dog had to get to the food and it was increasingly more difficult. It had to circumvent a barrier, for example. The dog could see where the food was, but it became increasingly harder to get there. And we would measure the time from the dog being released to the time the dog found its way to the food. And then in another kind of test, we thought, well, we figure that one of the things that dogs ought to be able to do is discriminate size, bigger versus smaller. And our thinking was, well, it's a, it must be part of a sort of dog's natural ethology to discriminate size, because if they're going to have a fight, for example, you want to know who's worth taking on and who's not. So if you're going to make efforts to go after um, some reward, you want to know whether the calories expended are going to be worth that reward. So we just thought size, probably, they're going to have some sort of discrimination ability. So what we did is we showed dogs repeatedly two concentric circles that had, were painted with peanut butter inside and asked them to choose left or right. And we measured how many times a dog would choose the bigger food reward over the smaller food reward. And we did it to this, we administered that to the same dog repeatedly. So it wasn't just chunks and that was quite fun. And then the last thing we did was basic, just social. So we figured dogs have evolved with humans and we are part of their natural environment. We're not part of the wolf natural environment, but we are part of the human I mean, the dog natural environment. And so we counted the number of times that a dog would go towards a be an inverted beaker that had food under it to which the human was pointing rather than the inverted beaker with food under it to which the human wasn't pointing. So it's tapping a dog's capacity to understand a human direction. So obviously it's not wrong if it goes to the other beaker because there's food there as well, but we're asking, do you, Mr. Dog, understand this human gesture? And again, we would repeat that several times to see how, how many times the dog would do it and to make sure it wasn't just chance. So was it, was it, it were they going after the, the human pointed one more often? Yes, more often than not. So in our, in our, in our paper, we, we wanted to see, we were just asking the question, here's a bunch of tests. We had 68 border collies and we wanted all the same breed of dogs so that we weren't comparing the elapsed time to a target of a greyhound with long legs compared mm -hmm. to the dachshund with short legs. So basically mm -hmm. to keep everything, to keep fewer, um, to keep fewer variables in the game, I guess. We wanted to keep as much consistent. So we had border collies, Mm -hmm. And we wanted to say, well, does a dog that discriminates between sizes also tend to reach the target food more quickly on average? So what we found is suggestive evidence that dogs that are good at one thing tend to be good at other tasks. We were asking, is there a G factor in dogs? And I would say we found tentative suggestive evidence that there is, but... I would also say 
you need 20 or 30 studies like this before you ever really know anything. Uh -huh. What about language in, in terms of how many commands dogs can recognize? Well, I tell you, some people, you know, other people have done some extraordinary work with that, where they've spent either a very long time with one individual dogs, individual dog, um, and then have recorded that an individual dog, I think it was Chaser, who did learn the names of a, a thousand objects. And the way in which that work was done was rather interesting. So if you had in the room um, a bunch of objects and, and you say, you know, go and get the ball, go and get the rabbit, go and get the porcupine to the dog, and the dog repeatedly fetches the, the, the correct object that it's been taught, it's not, it's been taught these things. But then if you say you have a, a rabbit, a teddy bear and a porcupine in the room and the dog knows the, the sound labels, that knows the acoustic signal to be formal that's attached to each of those objects, knows the word of them. And then you put in some object that the dog's never seen in its life before. Let's say it's been created specially for this test and it's a, a weird looking fluffy toy of some bizarre shape and you call it the dongle bongle. And you put that down amongst these known objects and you say to the dog, go and get the dongle bongle. The, some of these dogs have, they've gone around and they've looked at the dogs, at the, the, the toys that they have previously identified and thought, well, that's not a dongle bongle, nor is that, nor is that, it must be this one because it's the only one that's left and has correctly retrieved the only object that it hadn't been taught the name of. And that's, that's very striking. Not all dogs, um, I suspect not all dogs can learn to do that but it's very, very interesting because it is evidence of reasoning ability. Uh -huh. I think it's, it's that does sound like more of a general cognition. That's very cool. It does, yeah. So you, uh, I also read that you like to take an evolutionary approach to your work and you, you briefly mentioned how humans and dogs sort of co-evolved, but what are some other examples of, of that evolutionary approach to your thinking? Well, <laughs> I guess um, it's not that I've published work on this, but I have questions when I think about intelligence, for example. I do think, well, do we know what the fitness optimum is? Is I think about selection pressures. I think about intelligence as being a trait rather than mm -hmm. the best and most important trait in the whole world. Uh -huh. So there are, I think of it as being um, just one among many interesting characteristics. So if you think about height, for example, you'd say, well, around the globe, humans fit into a sort of height window. There aren't, there isn't a population of humans where the average is eight foot. We're all pretty much of a muchness, but we vary from one part of the world to another in terms of our average height and then you think well if the fitness optimum if selection was really really pushing us to be tall then you might find that there were populations where they've gone to sort of eight or nine foot mm -hmm. but they don't exist and so I think well it's probably that it's not a fitness optimum to be driving heights not being driven upwards in quite that way so I just sometimes when I think about intelligence and I apply those sorts of questions to it, I think, well, um, how would we find out what the fitness optimum for intelligence is? Maybe there are multiple optima, but I would like to see evolutionary thinking and mm -hmm. psychometric research join together a little bit more because I think it could be fruitful. Right, so earlier we talked about these trade-offs and I guess, Looking at individual people, it's not so obvious, but on an evolutionary time span, you might have a trade-off in the sense that like maybe a bigger brain requires more energy. And um, although it's it, it's hard to tell whether we have been pushed to like evolve greater intelligence like as fast as we possibly could, or if we sort of reach this this optimum, like you mentioned. Yeah. I think we need a big old 
chunk of humility pie in asking these questions or in pretend we don't know the answers to them mm -hmm. but i think they're really good questions to ask it could be that the evolutionary action if you like exists more in the lower end of intelligence in other words it could be that people with significantly lower than average intelligence tend not to survive as well nor mm -hmm. to reproduce as often and that there's not much action taking place in the other part of the distribution from mm -hmm. kind of a bit below average to very high intelligence it could be that 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 mm -hmm. whole range doesn't much matter but what is being selected against is very low intelligence. Uh -huh. It's certainly true that the culture that we're currently living in, you in America and me in England, is increasingly complex. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's very easy um, to overlook how tough it is to have an IQ of say around 70 and to make your way in a complex modern world, particularly for example, under pandemic conditions when people are throwing instructions at you, telling you that they don't take cash anymore, asking mm -hmm. you to do everything on your computer or your phone, asking mm -hmm. you to log in to perform certain basic tasks. If you have an IQ of 70, life is going to be really, really hard. And so whilst intelligence, I argue very strongly, is not the only trait that matters, we shouldn't underestimate the disadvantage and the hard work without a holiday that somebody mm -hmm. has uh, facing them if they have a very low IQ through absolutely no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. Right, so at least speaking from an evolutionary perspective, at a certain low enough level, it becomes difficult just to survive and manage. But then once you kind of reach the good enough zone, it's like there's not as much pressure to, to be smarter than that. It could be. I mean, I would say that's a question rather than an answer I'm arriving at. But I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. Also, things change over historical time and things change over geographical space. So there may be environments in which it really doesn't matter much um, as long as you're kind of average. And there may be other environments in which there's a big payoff for being smarter. I, you know, there may be, I can easily think of environments in which you would find it really, really hard to get by and survive and prosper and reproduce without being significantly higher in intelligence than other environments. And we're talking more like social or cultural environments. I'm talking about social and cultural environments, yes. For uh -huh. example, if certain jobs are forbidden to you, if, if a society, if a culture prescribes what occupations you and your kin are allowed to have, if all of those kinds of occupations are mentally extremely challenging, there's going to be a tremendous selection pressure on having the capacity to do those jobs just to survive. Let's giving that as an extreme example. So environments yeah. impose challenges to us through the cultures that the people in the environment create. It doesn't just have to be the physical attributes of the environment, like how many, it's not just how many trees there are, it's the rules that the people make up as well. Right, so I, I don't know the technical term for it, but it seems like this would be almost a selection pressure, not just like the only people who reproduce would be the ones who can meet those demands, but it would be more like people sort of pair up. So high demand women and high demand men, and then like, you know, you, it, so it almost imposes like this sort of hierarchy. Definitely. And I'm sure that the internet has changed our mating patterns to some extent. For example, let's say you're some bright geeky guy and you have some really niche interests 
and you really want to pair up with someone who shares some of those niche interests, you are now in 2021 able to pair up with someone who's extremely similar to you on a range of attributes that you wouldn't have been able to do if you'd been living, say, in 1821, where you'd only have been able to reach out to a small geographical range of people, at least as if you're an ordinary person, if you're royalty. Right, exactly. You can, you can say, bring me Princess, Princess Christina from Sweden and let me see what she looks like. And, but for, for us ordinary people, we would have been geographically restricted so you can, the internet affords ordinary people to pair up with people who might be really quite extreme on a number of different dimensions and put their interests and environments of genes all together in the same household. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of a book called The Mating Mind by an evolutionary psychologist, Joffrey Miller. And he, he makes an argument that the reason we got so intelligent so fast and that our brain, brains grew so fast is because of these sexual selection pressures for, I guess, the, the idea is you'd want a more intelligent mate. Yes, I think it's a really interesting thesis. I think Jeffrey Miller is an extremely creative scholar. Some people have tried to test his ideas empirically and some other creative scholars, Lars Penka and um, Ruben Arjlan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing Ruben's name correctly, sorry Ruben, um, have recently published uh, a, a test of those ideas and they found in a speed tape, I believe it was speed dating, and I believe it was mostly a population of university students, and I might be misreporting, I hope I'm not reporting their study, but I think they found something like um, people were able to perceive others' intelligence, but they weren't much attracted by it. So they could tell who in this quick dating forum, who the smart people were, but they weren't hugely attracted by the smarter people. And I'm not sure that that's a very fair test of Jeffrey Miller's um, thesis because, well, for one, if it's all university students, it's not going to be sampling the full range of people from IQ. I mean, people are people, even if their IQ is 65 or 70 and, or, you know, 100 and 140, 150. So I think that Jeffrey's argument better fits a distribution where you've got the whole range of um, human cognitive abilities in play and people do their mate selection that way. Right, so it's like in a university setting, maybe even the less intelligent people are still well above the good enough threshold. Very much so. In a typical university, the undergraduate students are going to be above the population average in intelligence. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So it, I mean, technically it's called range restriction, but I think that I haven't talked to the authors of the study about it, but I would be concerned to see whether or not they've taken that into account. But it's really good to test these theories empirically. And I'm sure that um, Jeffrey Miller would, would very much encourage that. And he, you need lots of studies to find out where you're going with a certain idea in science, not just one, not just two. So, um, but it's, it's terrific to make an empirical test of a, an exciting sounding theory. Right. So let's close talking about where you see um, the fields of intelligence research going maybe in the next in the next few years, a few decades. What are some big questions that you think might be on the verge of maybe not being answered, but getting more confident about? Oh, well, gosh, I should have prepared for that question because it's a good question. Um, well, as neuroscience samples get larger, we will understand, I believe, more about um, the ways in which the structure of the brain contributes to intelligence within the individual. Neuroscience is just really burgeoning, and I think we'll learn a great deal um, in the next 
decade about which structural features um, differ among individuals such as to contribute to their intelligence test scores. And there are wonderful young scholars like Kirsten Hilger and Annalena Schubert and um, uh, Matt Euler in, a, uh, Matt Euler, I think, sorry, in, in the States working on these kinds of questions. Um, I think that genetics is really, really developing. There's been a recent study of, I'm not sure if it's published yet, but 3 million people in the sample wow. where the scholars have looked at their DNA and they're trying to assess um, to what extent does the genetic score predict an IQ score. So that's making that's making progress in that we used to only be able to account for a small bit of intelligence variance using DNA from unrelated individuals and that the proportion that we can account for is growing and growing. That's quite amazing. Um, so only 20 or 30 years ago we had first sequenced the human genome and now there's a study with three million people. Yeah yeah it's really fabulous. Um, I would like to see some practical things. So one of my bugbears is that I think we have spent a lot of time and effort um, figuring out how to assess individual intelligence in a person. Why don't we spend some effort figuring out how to identify the intellectual complexity of a task? So not the person, but the task, so that we could say, here's a tax form. Everybody has to fill one of these in. How hard is that task? How many people with an IQ of 70, 80, 90, 100, 110 can easily perform that task? And if we were to reconfigure it slightly, does it mean that the proportion of people with an IQ of 90 could then uh, complete that task much more easily? So I think we should use take what we've learned from intelligence research and reverse engineer it onto actual tasks that people have to do. And I think you know, there, there are efforts to do this in what's called health literacy, where you try and make it easier for patients to understand their medical regime. Um, I think we could do that much more widely in society to decomplexify it and make ordinary everyday life more accessible and enjoyable for a wider range of people. That's great. Rosalind, thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much.